0: Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Carl Olson, editor of Catholic World Report, and I'm happy today to be doing an Ignatius Press interview with Dr. Edward Fazer, and I think Ed and I have known each other for a number of years, but I think this is really the first time that we've we've had the opportunity to speak in person, so this is really a delight for me. And we're going to be speaking today about his uh, recently published book, All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory. I think most people are probably familiar with Dr. Faser's work, but he uh, teaches philosophy at Pasadena City College down in California, and he's written many books, all of them fantastic. I confess I've not read all of them, Ed, but uh, I've read several of them, uh, books on Aquinas, uh, scholastic theology, atheism, uh, a wide range of topics. Um, and so welcome to uh, this conversation. Thank you, Carl. It's great to be here. So uh, I'll just start with a, you know, a basic question, uh, a book on racism, critical race theory. What, what was the uh, you know, the genesis of this? How did you come about to deciding to write on this particular uh, topic?
0: Yeah, it's, it's not a topic that, that I find intrinsically interesting. It's not a topic that, uh, I had, I had some burning interest to write about. Uh, but as with lots of other people in 2020, when the world seemed to be going insane and these ideas, uh, were gaining currency and not only were they gaining currency, but you know, people who otherwise would, uh, you'd think would resist them and find them crazy, which they are, were instead either adopting them or at least, uh, regarding them as something that maybe we had to accept and had to learn to dialogue with and so on and so forth it seemed to me that um there were problems serious problems with the ideas that needed to be addressed someone needed to say something about it and you know what needed to be said especially from a a catholic point of view it seemed to me people were not saying nobody was really saying what needed to be said and so uh as with some of the other things i've written like my book on the new atheism it wasn't so much the um inherent interest to the topic that drew me to it, but rather the fact that uh, things need to be said that other people weren't saying. So I'll I'll say it. And so I thought I better devote a a book to this. And so I did. And writing it was um, among the the most unpleasant writing experiences that I've had uh, because the the material, you know, reading through this stuff, whether it's the uh, popularizations uh, by people like Ibram Kendi and um, Robin DeAngelo, or whether it's the uh, you know the more technical academic stuff that they're popularizing. it's a very low intellectual quality, and it's frankly a very low moral quality. Uh, I mean, the worldview that's conveyed in is so ugly and divisive and hateful and so overflowing with resentment and um, you know the endless ferreting out of, of, of uh, reasons for grievance and complaint and so forth that it's just unpleasant to read it. it.'s just unple- and, and, the, and the level of argumentation is so bad. It's not like, you know, philosophers are are trained to um, be able to kind of detach themselves from an argument or an issue and read someone on the other side of an issue and still learn something from it. And typically that's the way I, you know, that's the way I operate. I mean, I read uh, what an opponent says and often it can be an idea that I just find crazy, but nevertheless, the writer might be so intelligent and might present arguments that are so interesting, even if ultimately wrongheaded, that you can you can really sort of get into it and enjoy the experience. But that's not the case here, because especially with the popularizers, with D'Angelo and Kendi, the, the arguments are so bad when there are arguments at all. I mean, it's it's virtually argument free. You read those books. It's just page after page of assertion, usually along the lines of just accusing those who disagree with them of racism. There's so little actual intellectual content there huh. that, you know, who there's no way I'd write on this stuff or read it if it weren't that. Too many people were taking it seriously. So, anyway, that was the that was the genesis of the book, was that it was something that needed to be said. No one else was saying exactly what I thought needed to be said. Not that, not that there weren't people saying important things and correct things about it, but but people weren't addressing right. it from a, quite the approach I thought was needed.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think your book is unique in that it is a uh, openly, overtly Catholic approach to these things, unapologetically so. And yet, not in a not in some kind of triumphalistic way, but just a very straightforward way. Uh, so, what are some of the what are some of the misunderstandings we see about uh, the Catholic Church historically and and mm-hmm. racism? I think there's a lot of misunderstandings or at least kind of stereotypes. What are some of those that you think are important for people to to uh, get a better beat on? Probably the most important
0: is that um, it's often uh, claimed that the church is kind of a latecomer to. Uh, the condemnation of racism and the mm-hmm. condemnation of practices like slavery. Uh, people sometimes write as if the church only seriously became aware of this maybe you know in the late 19th century at the earliest, with the, with some statements from Pope Leo XIII, and in earnest only with Vatican II, uh, and that before that the church had uh, had been happy to embrace slavery and was not terribly interested in the question of racism and so forth. that's that's uh, a complete myth. There's no truth to that at all. For one thing, um, the church's condemnation of slavery, as most people think of slavery, which is chattel slavery, which involves complete ownership of another human being the way you might own an animal or a, or a, a piece of property or something, the church has condemned that for centuries. And going back to the origins of the slave trade, as I document in the book, you see in pope after pope for centuries, uh, condemnation in no uncertain terms, in fact, in very harsh terms, in the case of a couple of popes, even to the point of, uh, uh, of excommunication of those who would dissent from this, condemnation of the idea that any human being could own another human being in that sense, and certainly a no less vigorous condemnation of the idea that any particular race was somehow inferior to another and didn't have the same uh, natural rights and dignity and moral status that uh, other human beings have. You find that uh, condemnation going back to the very beginnings of the slave trade uh, in the context of uh, uh, the New World and the context of Africa and so forth. Now, it's true that you had debates among Catholic theologians about whether uh, some of the harsh treatment that the colonial powers were meeting out to the um, American Indians, whether that could be justified. Uh, But the the view that, no, this was um, something that was inherently evil and had to be stopped, that was the view that won out. That was the view that uh, was defended by scholastics like Vittoria and de las Casas, and it was the view that the popes themselves endorsed. It's true that there were uh, Catholics who ignored this teaching, uh, but that's always been true. Right. Uh, just as today, there, there are lots and lots of Catholics who ignore the church's teaching on all kinds of issues, especially regarding sexual morality. There were people who ignored the church's teaching on racism, okay. but that doesn't change the fact that the teaching was there. Now, one reason for confusion on this is that people say, well, didn't the church long regard slavery as something legitimate under natural law? But here people fail to keep in mind that the term slavery is ambiguous and it's had different uses over the centuries. So there is, again, chattel slavery, as I just described it, which involves uh, treating another human being as just a piece of property, uh, the way you might treat an animal or an inanimate object. But then there are other practices like uh, what was called penal servitude or Service to another in, in punishment for a crime that you've committed, or there was indentured servitude, where you might have a prolonged period of servitude to another, in payment of a debt, say. Now, those practices are certainly morally problematic, and they have a ten- they can have a tendency to degenerate into chattel slavery. Um, but it's those practices that the church traditionally allowed was were permissible, at least in theory, and uh, were not intrinsically evil, though the. Uh, the view eventually prevailed that they were so morally problematic and morally hazardous that we're better off just getting rid of servitude of any kind. Uh, But what most people think of when they hear the word slavery is, again, chattel slavery and the kind of thing that existed in the American South prior to the Civil War, and the church always condemned that. So it's a failure to make these distinctions and to understand the actual history of the theology and and the church teaching behind it that leads people to this false supposition that the church is somehow a latecomer. Uh, On this issue and and needed to learn learn something from the modern world. Well, as is typical in church history, it's actually the church who initially teaches these things and the modern world later catches up and then congratulates itself for something that the church had already been saying.
1: And isn't it true? I mean, uh, it's kind of a side note, but ironically, there was actually kind of an explosion. I mean, the slavery as we see it in the new world in the 1600s was really part of uh, to kind of put it simplistically, of the Enlightenment era. I mean, it was kind of a it kind of flowed from that. That really uh, there was kind of I a, a I don't know if you can call it a rebirth, but more of a, a growth again of hardcore uh, you know evil forms of slavery um, that that kind of piggybacked on the Enlightenment era teaching and thought and approach to the human person. Yeah. Is that is that kind of a correct historical? Yeah, it was,
0: it was a it was it was a part of this broader in, uh, Enlightenment. Uh, tradition and the view that uh, some of its representatives had of, you know, the non-European parts of the human race. And yet, ironically, it's the inheritors of the Enlightenment, uh, modern, you know, uh, modern liberals and so forth who congratulate themselves for opposition to this sort of thing, which their own intellectual forebears were the defenders of and not the church. The church was always critical of it. And yet somehow the church gets tarred with the, uh, the, the moral failings of the church's past critics. You know, it's, 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 it's crazy.
1: I want to kind of segue to the critical race theory by, by touching on an important part about what, how the church approaches racism, which is, and you make, a, I think, a really key point about this in your book, that the Catholic approach to racism is rooted in a specific mm-hmm. anthropology view of the human person as opposed to many of the approaches to racism that we see in the secular world. Uh, which certainly run a gamut, uh, kind of on a spectrum. But uh, can you talk to us a moment about that difference? Why that distinction uh, is so is so vital? I think both in approaching racism, but also when we come to critical race theory, it informs that as well, right?
0: Yeah. So you know the way that the the question of race and, and the questions of race and racism are usually addressed are uh, say from a biological point of view, with race defined biologically, and then the argument becomes whether there are some uh, innate uh, differences. Uh, granted, in genetics or what have you, that where, you know, getting all that right is crucial to, uh, to getting the morality right, so that you've got to kind of wait on pins and needles for the results of, uh, of empirical research there before you can uh, condemn racism, say. Uh, but the church's teaching against racism, as I emphasize in the book, is much deeper than anything that biological science could either confirm or undermine. Uh, it's got a twofold foundation. One of them being metaphysical and one of them being an even deeper theological foundation. Now, the metaphysical foundation has to do with uh, our nature as rational animals, uh, which we all have in common. And this is something that, uh, from the point of view of Catholic philosophy, is something we know from metaphysical analysis of human nature rather than from empirical science. It goes deeper than empirical science. So all human beings, just by virtue of being rational animals, uh, have certain obligations under natural law and certain rights under natural law. And that doesn't have anything to do with uh, the details of biology, uh, but rather, again, with this deeper fact about us that we are rational by nature and where our rationality reflects an immaterial or a non-physical aspect of human nature. It's it's the reason why human beings have immortal souls, because there's an aspect of us that's not tied to matter in the first place, namely our, our intellects and our wills, our capacity for reason and for free choice. So it's that that's the the foundation in natural law of our special dignity. And since that's the foundation, it's a foundation that's not going to be overthrown by anything that uh, biological science might discover or even could discover. The second and even deeper foundation is in uh, theology, namely the fact that uh, all human beings are offered the beatific vision, which is not something we're owed by nature. It's something that we're offered by grace, and it has to do with not just the natural knowledge of God that we might have just by virtue of being human and and able to do philosophy and reason to God's existence and all that kind of thing, but rather the beatific vision is a kind of intimate face-to-face knowledge uh, with God. Uh, The the human intellects are directly apprehending the divine essence, the very nature of God, and this is made possible only by grace, uh, and it's made possible only if our sins are wiped away by the sacrifice of Christ and so forth. that's offered equally as scripture tells us the very scripture that reveals that this is possible also reveals that it's offered to every human being without exception and so that the 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 added dignity to human nature that's supernatural or above nature that is entailed by this calling uh, because it's offered to every human being equally it affords every human being a, a special dignity they wouldn't otherwise have and here too we're talking about something that we know from special divine revelation, not from biological science. So this is the church, when the church has spoken on these matters, spoken on racism, church has always emphasized that it's, it's, it's in these two aspects of human nature. Uh, our status as rational creatures, uh, just as a matter of basic uh, metaphysics, traditional Catholic metaphysics, and our supernatural calling to the beatific vision. That is what gives all human beings an equal dignity. Uh, and again, these are foundations then that are deeper than anything that biological science could either confirm or undermine.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really essential point here, mm-hmm. and it does tie directly, I think, into, into critical race theory because it, is it fair to say that that critical race theory is really uh, its foundations are inherently either atheistic or at least you know on the horizontal agnostic. I mean, there's uh, is there any kind of transcendent aspect? To this theory, I mean, I know you talk in the book about the very complicated relationship between critical race theory and forms of Marxism of postmodernism. It's obviously a very, uh, you know, in, involved topic. Um, but would you say that metaphysically that there's kind of an atheistic, even just a practical atheist, underpinning to critical race theory in general? I don't know that I would. That I would say it's inherently atheist because I think
0: that the critical race theory analysis, just considered by itself. It uh, doesn't make any essential reference to, uh, to, you know, very broad and fundamental uh-huh. metaphysical issues like, uh, whether or not God exists, but to the extent that it has any theological relevance right. at all, uh, writers like Ibram Kendi have made it clear that it would, uh, it would be in harmony with, uh, what in Catholic, the Catholic context is called liberation theology, but where liberation theology okay. is something that is at odds with Catholic orthodoxy as, uh, Popes John Paul II and, and, uh, Benedict XVI made clear in in no uncertain terms. Uh, I quote Kendi in the book um, because he was asked about this and, you know, he's asked whether uh, his position is compatible with Christianity. He says, well, in Christianity, you've got, you know, what what we can call savior theology and liberation theology. And he says, savior theology is the idea that um, human beings have fallen into sin and they need redemption from this sin And so we need to do what the Christian needs to do is to go out and lead people to repentance so that they can be saved. And that once we've done that, we've done the main work. Okay. now he says, well, that's savior theology. And Of course, everyone else knows that is just Christian theology. That's just that's just like the core of traditional Christian theology. But uh, Kendi gives it this special label. And then he says that savior theology is a basically just a, a kind of tool of racism. Uh, I imagine he thinks it distracts people from what they really need to worry about, which is uh, changing political structures and so forth. And then he contrasts that with liberation theology. He says it's a matter of liberating people from unjust social structures and overthrowing a uh, white supremacist system and blah, blah, blah. It's just, you know, it's just basically critical race theory with a little religiosity thrown in. And the way he characterizes liberation theology, which he says is the only kind of theology which is compatible with what he regards as an anti-racist view of the world. It's just exactly what you find condemned by the church repeatedly in uh, the 1980s, especially when this was a big deal that uh, John Paul II and then Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI, um, when they condemned this idea as a politicization of uh, the gospel and an incorporation, an attempt to incorporate into the gospel, of uh, alien Marxist elements, which are of their very nature irreconcilable, and we could talk about how that's so and how how that all that relates to critical race theory. But in any event, that's the you know that's one of the explicit uh, ways in which a critical race theorist popularizer like Kendi has tried to relate uh, CRT to uh, Christianity.
1: Yeah, one of the more controversial. I know there's a lot of controversy and a lot of uh, argument over the relationship between Marxism which itself is a very broad and, and complicated topic, and critical race theory. Um, and you do talk about this a bit in the book um, and, and make some, I think, key distinctions, which maybe you can touch on a little bit. But, I mean, how would you, you know, kind of in a, a nutshell, explain that that relationship between Marxism and critical race theory? And then where does, you know, postmodernism, which, again, that's another really wide, broad topic. How does that fit into the picture as well?
0: Yeah. So on the, on the Marxism uh, side of the issue, I would say that uh, – I'll note uh, two particularly important parallels between critical race theory and, and Marxism. The first one is this, that in traditional Marxist analysis, you have this idea that the history of human society is essentially a history of the conflict between uh, economic classes and where the, the conflict between the classes flows from the nature of the classes themselves. It's not accidental but rather essential. That these classes are at odds with one another hmm. uh and so in the marxist analysis you know you've got this idea that okay so if you go back to say the roman empire you've got an economic order that's based on slavery and so you've got the oppressing uh slave-holding class and the oppressed class of slaves then you've got feudalism you have got the oppressive class of uh feudal lords and then the serfs who are in um uh enthralled to them and so forth and then you've got in modern times you've got the oppressing capitalist class and the oppressed Uh, working class and so forth and the idea is that again that these classes are not just distinct and they don't just happen to be at odds but of their very nature they are at odds that it's there's no way you can have a sort of classless society a a, a sort of class-based society without those classes being at odds with one another now the church always emphasize has always emphasized that this is a perverse uh way of looking at human life and human society and it's 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 against the natural order of things to look at human society this way, that um, human beings tend to fall into different groups, different classes, that's inevitable given the diversity of human talents and so forth, but that the different groups within society ought to be seen as like members of the body where they all contribute to the overall social whole. And so the church repeatedly condemned this Marxist idea that the classes that make up society are inherently hostile to one another. Now, what critical race theory does is it takes this basic... Uh, Marxist sort of analysis, but it replaces the category of class with the category of race, and so its analysis of uh, modern human history is as a a story of inherently opposed races. In particular, uh, the white race, whiteness, white supremacy, white privilege, etc. All these little you know buzz phrases are thrown out on the one hand, and then people of color on the other hand, and and The idea is that whiteness and white supremacy and white identity and blah, 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 that this is of its very nature or inherently anti-black or anti-person of color so that you have uh, the different racial groups of their very nature at odds with one another rather than just as a matter as an accidental matter. So, you know, when you read some of these guys, there's this repeated emphasis that, well, there, there can't be any such thing as a positive white identity. There can't be any such thing as um, a kind of innocent uh, characterization of it, that of its very nature, it is oppressive. And anyone oh. who is white has somehow sh- has a share in the crimes and the guilt of the white race and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so if you just transplant the racial concepts into Marxism and replace the class concepts with them, you've got critical race theory. I and mean, you've got the core of it anyway. Now, if if you can't reconcile the idea of inherent class hatred and hostility with Catholicism, you can hardly reconcile the idea of inherent racial hostility. Uh, if the one is contrary to Catholic social teaching, the other one is. In fact, it's even more obviously so because race goes deeper in human nature than, than class does. In fact, as I emphasize in the book, if you're going to look right. for a parallel between uh, critical race theory and some other modern secular totalitarian ideology, the, the closest parallel is not Marxism. It's actually National Socialism. It's actually Nazism. I know it's easy for people just to call their enemies Nazis and all that. and It's overdone. Of course, it's overdone. But the point is, I mean, hey, don't blame me. Don't shoot the messenger here. I mean, if you've got an ideology which says that (laughs) one racial group is somehow uniquely villainous and oppressive of all the others as inherently at odds with others. Well, the, the closest parallel, if you're just looking at intellectual and political history, it's right there. It's National Socialism. If you replace what critical race theory says about whiteness and white uh, white uh, supremacy and white privilege and all this, and you replace that ref- with references to Jewishness and so forth, you've got your you've got your national socialism right there. It's it's creepily and, and disturbingly similar. So that's one parallel with Marxism. The other parallel is that there's a tendency in uh, Marxism, especially in its most, in its more vulgar forms, to Analyze all criticism of the theory as nothing more than you know a, a smokescreen for some kind of class interest. So you know you try to present some reasoned criticism of the theory, and the vulgar Marxist response is well that's just what you know a tool of the capitalist oppressing class would say, and so I can just dismiss you know not every Marxist would do that. I mean you know there are some that are more sophisticated, but you know the, the sort of vulgar Marxist tendency is just to say well I can dismiss your criticism therefore because it's badly motivated. This is basically just the ad hominem fallacy as a tool of analysis. Um, but critical race theory does the same sort of thing. You know, any any resistance or criticism of critical race theory itself uh, must be nothing more than a manifestation of racism and can therefore be dismissed on that basis. Well, that's basically just ad hominem, the ad hominem fallacy, and also uh, the begging the question fallacy, yeah. circular reasoning, because th- of course, whether critical race theory really gets things right in the first place is part of what's at issue. But these are basic logical fallacies made into fundamental tools of analysis and argumentation by the critical race theorists. And in that respect, too, it
1: has a kind of similarity to to a kind of
0: vulgar Marxist view of things.
1: So where, you know, this leads to, to one of my final questions here, which is, where does this end? I mean, for a critical race theorist, and you mentioned some of the popularizers whose books have been, you know, b- massive bestsellers. Mm-hmm. How do they envision this ending? What do they see as the, you know, for we were fast forwarding, say, 50 years and all of their analysis was accepted and everything came true and and it was all done according to their particular blueprint. What would we be looking at? I mean, how do they see society needing to exist uh, in under the the critical race theory, uh, you know, notions.
0: Well, I guess here we have one further parallel with Marxism, which is that the end state is left very vague and it's got negative rather than positive content. So in Marxism, you have this idea that, well, when all oppression finally is eliminated and, you know, economic history has worked itself out by way of the laws that govern, uh, that govern it and so forth, we'll reach a state when, um, uh, cl- classes disappear, the state itself disappears. Uh, we'll all be sitting around, you know, doing literary criticism in the morning and fishing in the afternoon or whatever it was that, you know, we'll probably reverse the order there, whatever it was that Marx <laughs> thought would be the outcome. But where the mechanism of this is left vague, you know, well, how, is exact, how exactly is this going to happen? You know, well, I don't have to worry about that, Marx says, you know, the laws of history will take care of it. Well, you have a similar vagueness in critical race theory. It's just, well, we'll get rid of racism and we'll get rid of oppression and blah, blah, blah. But what exactly does that look like? Well, the way that the critical race theorist tends to characterize oppression, its chief manifestation is, quote, inequity. So if you have, for example, 10 percent of the population of a certain country is of a certain race, but less than 10 percent of the stockbrokers in that country are of that race, say, well, that's inequity. That's racism. And if you say, well, maybe it's not racism, maybe that reflects uh, cultural. no, 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 it's racism. It's racism. Okay. so inequities are treated as per se racist. Well, you're always going to have inequities of some kind or other in human life. And everybody knows that and you have right. you you know you, yeah. have, you have inequities in the other direction where say whites or Asians are uh, uh, underrepresented in certain areas. Nobody complains about that. Nobody should complain about it. Who cares? But the the point is that if you use this this concept of inequity and you just basically treat all inequity as per se racist As what I just said indicates, they don't actually treat all inequity as racist. It's very selective. But you basically got a recipe for endless grievance, because no matter how long it takes, no matter how ineffective critical race theory remedies are, and these remedies include, you know, as much reverse discrimination, discrimination against whites as is necessary. I mean, people like Kendi are quite explicit about this Uh, for as long as necessary and as thoroughgoing as necessary. To eliminate so called inequities. As long as there's any kind of inequity, um, then the critical race theorists will always attribute it to uh, as yet unremedied racism, as yet unremedied uh, oppression. And therefore, we have no real end game. It's just endless grievance and endless imposition of ever more draconian uh, uh, discriminatory measures to to redress the the so-called injustice of inequity. So you don't really have any clear end game any more than in Marxism.
1: Yeah, I think that's significant because I, in my experience, a lot of people just don't bother to think these things through. They accept the premises or they kind of go along with it and then they never think, well, where's this going to lead? What's the actual goal here? And that seems to be kind of a constant concern because, um, I just, I think a lot of people don't think through these these matters very well at all. Uh, speaking of that final question here, um, do you have any, you know, kind of final thoughts, any points that you think are really uh, essential? Obviously, we want people to to read the book where you go into these things in, in detail, um, but any kind of concluding thoughts that you'd like to offer? Um, it's very important for people to get themselves up to speed on what
0: critical race theorists and their popularizers, people like Kendi and uh, Daniel are actually saying, because I think people can lull themselves to sleep, especially if they're in positions of authority, if they're politicians or they're churchmen, bishops, and what have you, um, can lull themselves into sleep and thinking, well, this is a pretty aggressive and obnoxious movement, but I mean, it is presented in the name of anti-racism and who can be against anti-racism. So maybe we can adopt a lot of it, or maybe we can kind of do business with it. And that's extremely naive and dangerous, because when you actually read what these writers are saying... Uh, they're saying things that are extremely divisive, are extremely irrational, have no good arguments or evidence in their favor, uh, but can do nothing but stir up hostility between people. And so they cannot be accommodated. They don't want to be accommodated. They don't, they, I mean, they explicitly, you know, you read someone like Kendi, he explicitly says, this is not something that is going to be resolved from his point of view by way of persuasion or dialogue that what matters is gaining power. He even uses a phrase like. What he wants is a movement of so-called anti-racists or critical race theorists who are motivated by nothing but the craving for power. He uses the word craving for power. Um, And he explicitly rejects rational persuasion. So this is the kind of thing that can't, you know, you can't accommodate it. It has to, it can't be incorporated into curricula and Catholic schools and all that. It's it's poison. Uh, No more than Marxist theory could be incorporated. The church always firmly rejected that, said you cannot compromise with this kind of thing. And the same thing is true of critical race theory. So this is why I wrote the book. People need to get themselves up to speed on this, find out what these writers are actually saying. So there's a lot of quotes in the book from, the, from these sources to show that they're not being misrepresented when people characterize them as extreme and radical. Their own words show just how extreme uh, their views are. So I'd urge people to educate themselves about this and see how dangerous it is to sort of let this stuff fester and allow it into Catholic schools and the like.
1: Thank you, Ed. The book is All One in Christ, A Catholic Critique of Racism and Critical Race Theory by Dr. Edward Fazer. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll talk again uh, soon. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press.
0: We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.